man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. in front of you, open to Galatians chapter 1, either in printed form or in electronic format. This morning I'd like to begin a series of messages on, uh, taken from covering the, the book of Galatians. This is a letter Paul wrote. Um, to a group of churches that were basically south-central Turkey today. Um, If you want a theme that will cover the next several weeks or months, years, of of looking at at Galatians, um, it would be this, the authentic gospel. The authentic gospel. Now, we know that word gospel is a Christian word. It's a word that means good news. Euangelion in the Greek means to announce something that is good news for people. And so the gospel in particular is the good news of Jesus Christ, what God the Father has done in Christ to save a lost humanity. So uh, the word gospel is very much a a Christian word these days. It wasn't that case in uh, the days of the New Testament. And Uh, We could even uh, think about that uh, in uh, that time, in Paul's day, there were actually many Gospels floating around. Uh, There was the Gospel of philosophy. If you wanted to know how to order your life, how to decide what to do, what not to do, what your values ought to be, uh, how to conduct your business, you could go to the Gospel of philosophy and you could pick either the peripatetics or the academics or the cynics or the stoics. I bring those up so you know I took philosophy 101. Uh, But you could go and you could get the gospel of philosophy. Uh, There was also something called the gospel of the empire. And that is that whoever had the most soldiers, whoever had the most power, whoever had the best weapons, whoever could impose their will and force themselves upon somebody else, they were living a good life. This is really working out well for the Romans. Uh, They had conquered the known world. They would just about gone to the limits of what they uh, wanted to do, and uh, it was working out great for Rome. They'd conquer other lands, bring all the resources, pour them into the city of Rome. They were doing well, not so hot for everybody else, but this gospel of empire was basically a gospel of power, the gospel of being able to make others do what you wanted them to do. You might have gone to the gospel of religion. Uh, Of course, there was Judaism. Uh, the height of the human expression of religiosity. You could have gone to the uh, cultic religions, the mystery religions. You could have gone to the established Greco-Roman religions and system of gods. Uh, However you wanted to worship somewhere, somebody had come up with a religion that would suit you, a religion that would entertain you, seem meaningful to you, where you could meet you friends, conduct some business, and have a happy life. So you could go to 
the gospel of religion. There was something that I would call the gospel of paganism. Now, when we think of pagans, we normally think of a motorcycle gang. But the, the word pagan, paganus, originally it just meant the people who lived out in the countryside. It was the salt of the earth people. The word pagan just meant the average Joe who was walking through life and just trying to do the best he could. When he went into town and he needed something done, he might go to the temple of Athena. He might go to the temple of Asclepius. It all depended on what the need was. Why, if he was hungry, he might even go to that thing called a Christian church because they had this thing of eating a meal together, an agape meal together. And it was a free lunch. It was a great deal. You had to listen to a lecture, but you could get through that and then you'd go home and pretty much run your life on your own. And so there was a gospel of paganism. And so in the day of Paul, there were a lot of ways that people were looking at life and a lot of ways they were trying to decide what kind of person should I be and what should I do with my life? How would I be fulfilled? I don't think I have to convince you that there are many gospels floating through our world today. Many of them are the exact same gospel, the gospel of power and influence. Uh, the gospel of religion and religiosity and the quest for mysticism and some kind of spirituality, uh, spinning prayer wheels and ringing bells and lighting candles. There's a gospel of wealth, and sadly that's even invaded sometimes into the Christian church, but the idea if you just have more money, more stuff, a bigger bank account, somehow you're going to be happy. There's all kinds of gospels, all kinds of things that people are peddling today and saying today that says, here's how you should run your life. Here's what will make you happy and fulfilled in your life. Sadly, you can walk into some buildings that have the name Christian over the door, the name Christian in the bylaw someplace. They're not churches anymore. They're, they're centers. They're, they're community groups. They're this, they're that. They're anything but churches because, after all, nobody likes churches. And, uh, but you can walk in, and while we would not judge another man's servant, you listen to a sermon, and probably most of what you get is God is in the business of making you happy. Why, if you're unfulfilled right now, just trust God, and he'll pour stuff into your life. You, you need money, God will give you more money. If you need more health, God will give you more health. Why, all you need is a little bit of mustard seed faith and a $10 donation, and God will make you happy in a health and wealth gospel presentation. There are, there are presentations in churches and in, from pulpits that are basically talking about, here's how you can be happy, basic biblical principles, and all they really do is take something they heard on the the radio or read in a book someplace, find one or two verses that they can stick in on an overhead and try to convince you that now they're a financial expert, but all they really know about is Hebrew and Greek, and that, and that they didn't do too well. And so they pre- preach this sort of, sort of uh, self-help kind of sermon, and it's very helpful, and it's a gospel of how to be happy, but it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I want for us to do as we look at the letter to the Galatians is to gain a sensitivity to what the authentic gospel really is. That we would gain a sense of what it means to actually be hearing the gospel as God would have it proclaimed by the power of his Holy Spirit so that when we hear a different gospel, it just doesn't ring true and we don't latch on to it, we don't get sucked into it. So our goal in looking at Galatians is to know what the authentic gospel is, have it become so much a part of us, so deeply embedded in us, that nothing can get through and displace the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why we're reading the book of Galatians, is to know the authentic gospel 
of Jesus Christ. Now, we look at Galatians, and uh, we ask ourselves, well, why did Paul write this thing? Obviously, there was a problem. Um, scholars give us two um, datings for the uh, letter to the Galatians. The reason scholars have two different ways to date Galatians is because nobody ever got a Ph.D. by saying there's one way to date anything. Um, but there, there's one group of scholars who say, well, Galatians was written probably about the same time as the book of Romans, somewhere in the mid-50s A.D., uh, after Paul had been preaching for, for several decades and, and his ministry had developed and advanced. And, and a lot of Galatians look so much like the book of Romans that they must have been written sometime uh, about the same time. There's a lot of folks who think that. Um, then there's another group of people growing uh, who happen to be right who think that uh, the gospel uh, or the, the letter to the Galatians was probably written much earlier. This has to do with the way in which you meld together the information about Paul's life in the book of Acts and the biographical data that he gives us later on in the book of Galatians. But if you put those together and try to reason that out, you, you may well come to the conclusion that Galatians was written sometime in the latter half of the 40s, about 47, 48 A.D., and that would make it the earliest letter that we have written by Paul. In other words, as we look at Galatians, by that dating, we are looking at one of the first things Paul ever wrote and the first thing that ever ever was preserved by the church for later generations to read. So this is a very early writing of the Apostle Paul. Why does it look so much like the book of Romans? Because when you preach the truth at the beginning of your ministry and you preach the truth at the end of your ministry, all your preaching is going to look the same throughout your ministry. That's that's why the letters look the same. So um, I I would suggest to you that this is one of the earliest letters we have. Uh, You could even make the argument that this letter to the Galatians is the first book written down that we have in the New Testament. You might give a run for for the money on that with... uh, well, that would be horse racing betting, wouldn't it? You can't, okay. Uh, you, you might want to discuss uh, the letter of James, uh, for example, whether or not that was written earlier, but uh, um, that's, that's for somebody else to decide. But this is a very, very early writing. And what does that mean? That means this goes way back. This, this, is, this is close, real close in history to the preaching of Jesus and the calling of the disciples and teaching them and bringing them on board to preach the, the gospel. So we have here a very reliable kind of document that we read. Now, evidently what had happened is that Paul, on his first missionary journey, had traveled through um, uh, a region of the province of Galatia and had established churches there, and they had accepted Christ, and he he left them in a strong sort of ministry. Then sometime later, word came to Paul that some other teachers had come in. These were folks who were Jewish by background and Christian, but they were coming in with a little bit different perspective. These other folks came into the Galatian churches, and they said, you know, Paul told you about Jesus, and that's great. He told you about the grace of God by faith in Christ. That's wonderful. We praise God that you have accepted the gospel on the basis of Jesus the Messiah. But what Paul forgot to tell you is that Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. What Paul forgot to tell you is that God has all along been working with the chosen people of Israel, and it is through the Jews that salvation comes. And therefore, if you're going to really know the full 
fullness of what God has done in Jesus Messiah. You must enter into the fullness of what God has done in the Old Covenant with the people of Israel in the Jewish tradition. And so if you're really going to understand the gospel, not only do you need to accept the grace of God by faith in Christ, but you must then add to that an investment and involvement and integration into the law of God as we find it in the Old Covenant. And therefore, in other to be in order to be a Christian, you must also keep aspects of the law that was given to the Jews. For example, to observe circumcision, to observe the dietary laws, to observe the keeping of the Sabbath. These things will mark you out as faithful to the Jewish community and thereby mark you out as one who is fully now understanding Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And so evidently there were some folks who had come in and they're saying, what Paul told you about Jesus was fine. He didn't go far enough. You just need some works to add to that. It's, it's almost like someone said, you know, you're saved by grace, absolutely saved by grace, but you're going to keep it by works. You're saved by the grace of God, but the only way you can hang on to it is if you're good enough. God is very happy to save you by the blood of Christ, but the moment you step out of line, his wrath comes right back on you. And you're, and you're sunk again. And so you have to keep the law and keep the works of the law in order to maintain this posture of grace that you have. So that, that's what was going on in the Galatian churches is people were coming and said, it's not just faith in Christ, it's also works of the law. And by that they meant it is trying to be righteous and acceptable to God on the basis of what you do and how you conduct your life. So it was a mixture of grace and works together that was being taught in the Galatian churches. Now, in response to that, Paul writes the letter to the Galatians. And uh, if you want to sum up the whole thing, uh, and, and Paul essentially says, Galatians, you just confused the stew out of me. How could you so quickly give up the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ? And the whole letter is about exposing, expositing what is the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at the authentic gospel of Christ as we find it here in the book of um, Galatians. That's our goal. So have the text in front of you. Um, I mean, I, I would really like you to have the text in front of you, if at all possible, in printed format. Uh, in digital format, I trust you not to play, what is it, Flappy Birds or something. <laughs> flappy Apostles. I know, I know. But, you know, I'm, I'm trusting you to actually be looking at Scripture. I want you to have it in front of you. Now, your temptation is going to be turn it off or to close your Bible. That's going to be your temptation, and here's why. Uh, as we go through this, as we fly through the, the, the letter to the Galatians, uh, we'll, we'll be looking, first of all, this morning at this one verse. And frankly, you can memorize it by the time I'm through with this paragraph. Paul, an apostle, not by man, but by Jesus Christ and the, God the Father. I mean, that's it. Who raised him from the dead. I mean, that's, that's the whole verse. So you could actually memorize and just have it in your head and never look at it again. I want you to have it in front of you. Look at it, look at it, look at it. So the Word of God comes in through the eyes as you're hearing the Word of God repeated through the ears then so that through the, 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 the visual and the audible senses that you are just immersed in God's Word. I want you to see it there. So keep looking down at it. Keep looking down at it. Let it become a part of the, the visual uh, pattern in your mind. So I, I'm just praying that you have that open and there in front of you. So we, we turn to verse 1. Paul, 
Well, now you know why it's going to take a while to get through this. <laughs> what you have to understand is that Paul's life was radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. That Paul's life was radically changed. That word radical, it means uh, at the root. It means sunk down deep where Paul gained the very essence of who he is. Down at the deepest level that was defining Paul's life. Down at the root. That's what the word radical means. Down in a radical way at the root, Paul's life had been changed by the power of the gospel. Paul, of course, had grown up as a, as a Jew. He had grown up as one who was advancing in, 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 uh, in uh, academic study and in, and in position and authority. He was one of the fair-haired boys who had been marked out for promotion, you know, above the class, that kind of thing. And uh, if he just kept on the same path he was on, eventually he was going to wind up as the chief of priests or the, the, um, uh, the, the head priest in the Sanhedrin. I mean, he, he, was, he was on the path to success. That was Paul's life. And it wasn't like he didn't know about God. He was totally focused on God. He was absolutely given over to God. But one thing that happened to Paul was that when he was on his way from Jerusalem to the city of Damascus, he was going from Jerusalem to go arrest Christians in Damascus, put them into prison, intimidate their families, silence their friends, put an end to this budding movement called Christianity, the followers of the way. He was on his journey to Damascus in order to put a stop to these Christians. And as he was walking along, the bright light of Jesus Christ and his presence appeared to him, and Paul was confronted by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the scripture at that point says that Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And there's a whole sermon there on persecuting the church as persecuting Christ. But we, we, we move on beyond that. But, but uh, Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul cries out and he says, who are you, Lord? He says, who are you? Now, there's a number of questions Paul could have asked. The other question he could have asked was, what's going on here? See, the what question is the question you give to scientists. You know, what's going on here? Then you bring in the psychiatrists. You bring in the psychologists. And they start doing testing, and they say, well, here's what's going on, Paul. You really had a, a, a troubled childhood. You didn't quite get along with your dad. You were abandoned by your mother. You were dominated by your brother. And, uh, and so and, and you're having this visionary experience because of the buildup of tension in, in your life, and that's how we explain it. And, and the biologist comes along and says, well, actually what we know now is that because of the tension in your life, you've had the, 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 the giving forces certain neurotransmitters, and the synapses in your brain have changed, and you've had a biochemical change and that's what's going on or the historian would come along and say well here's here's what's happening you're caught in this vortex of, of historical movements going back and forth that we can trace back in our history books and cite and, and footnotes and everything and 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 we'll write that and here's what's happening so the what question is the question that you ask of scientists and observers just to say hey what's going on here and the thing about the what question is after you've answered that question nothing really changes if you ask the what question, all you get is maybe a little insight and some interesting things to say, but you don't really have change going on. 
So Paul didn't ask the what question. He asked the who question. Who are you, Lord? Because suddenly Paul realized this isn't fitting into my category of what God does. This isn't fitting into my my comfortable life. I'm a religious guy. I believe in God. I go to synagogue. I, I worship in the temple. I've got all that nailed down. And here I'm being confronted and I'm persecuted. Who are you? Because if you're who I think you are, everything I've ever believed is going to be shattered and broken and left in small pieces around my feet. And I've got to start all over again. Paul said, who are you? See, it's the who question that changes your life. It's the who question. Of course, Paul heard the answer. You know, I'm Jesus. That's who I am. Jesus? Yes, Jesus. The crucified criminal. The man that we put to death because he wouldn't keep in line with our understanding of religion. Jesus, the one who was shamed on the cross. That Jesus? Yes. I heard about something that the tomb was empty and his disciples are going around. They're talking about the resurrection. Here I am, Paul. And suddenly, you know, everything just sort of falls into place in Paul's life because of who Jesus is. Now, that's an encounter with the authentic gospel. That's an encounter with the gospel. Not trying to find out the answer to a bunch of what questions, but finding the answer to the who question in your life. See, there's a lot of us who want to hear the what questions answered. They're safer. They're just safer. I want to go to church and I want to hear the what question. What do I do about my kids? What do I do about money? What do I do about my marriage? What do I do about my my emotions? What, what, What do I do about my job? We want answers to the what question. And so we, uh, you know, maybe something else is being heard or said, but what we hear is just a bunch of answers about helpful tips on what to do with our life. And we get this what sort of sermon filtering into our minds. Here's what's happening. Here's what you do. But here's the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is Savior. That's who he is. And when you get straight in your mind and straight in your life who Jesus is, then the who question puts all the what questions into place. And so Paul is going to the road to Damascus. He encounters Jesus Christ. He says, who are you? I need to know who you are because that's the real question in life. Who is Jesus Christ in your life? That's the authentic gospel. That's that's the gospel that Paul encountered in his life. And that's the first thing we want to say about the, the authentic gospel. It changes lives at its root. The very foundation of life. Jesus Christ changes lives. So that, that's, that's the, the first thing we say, say about this uh, authentic gospel. So we read on. Paul, an apostle. An apostle... <laughs> You see, an apostle is someone who has been sent on a mission. Uh, If you want the Greek-based English word, it's apostle. If you want the Latin-based English word, it's missionary, missio. And so um, 
when Paul says, I'm an apostle, he's saying, now in my life, I am one who is sent on a mission with something I must do on behalf of the one who sent me. So he says, I'm, I'm an apostle. Now, here's the thing. Before he met Jesus Christ, Paul was also an apostle. He was an apostle. Didn't use that name, but if you'd asked him, he would have come around and said, yeah, I guess I'm an apostle. Here's why. He had gone to the council in Jerusalem, the the great council in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, and he said, look, we've got to take care of those Christians in Damascus. The Sanhedrin said, you know, Paul, you're one sharp fellow. We like the work you're doing, and, and you seem the guy for this. We're going to what? Send you to Damascus with letters of commission, letters authorizing you to arrest these Christians and intimidate their friends. We're going to send you to Damascus with a mission of putting them in jail. So Paul was an apostle of Jerusalem when he was on his way to Damascus. Before he got there, he encountered Jesus Christ, and he became an apostle of Jesus Christ to the lost on behalf of the glory of God. So he had always been an apostle, but now he was a different kind of apostle. And it was all because of who Jesus Christ is. And that's why he goes on to say, an apostle, not from men, not through a man, not defined by human thought and agency, not trying to please men, not trying to get in good with men, but rather my apostleship, not of men, not from a man, but my apostleship, my being sent, my life is now defined by by Jesus Christ and the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, look at the way he phrased that. He said, this, this sending that I have, I'm sent by Jesus Christ and his Father. And then he texts us on, who raised him from the dead. First, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, I'm an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who gave us a bunch of laws to obey. He didn't say, and from God the Father who's given us a bunch of helpful hints on how to live our lives. I'm, 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 I'm being sent from God the Father who, by the way, will just make you happy and wealthy and healthy if you just uh, you know, put your offerings in the right offering plate. He didn't say, I, I'm being sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father who has enabled us to keep our salvation. He gives it to us, but we have to keep it by works. He says, no, I am sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's Easter. That's Easter. You know, he's risen. He's still risen indeed. We preach that every Sunday. This is the Jesus whom we preach. Easter isn't about just some odd doctrine that we call out once a year and Christians are kind of embarrassed because we talk about some guy who was dead and now he's alive and everybody knows dead people stay dead. No, Easter, the resurrection, is the very heart of the gospel because when God raised him from the dead, he declared Jesus with power to be the Son of God. When God raised him from the dead, he raised him so that we might have newness of life. When God raised him, he raised him from the dead so that we might have life everlasting, so that we might live in the power of that resurrection. This is no small thing. And it's not a throwaway line. You know, it's not just Paul said, hey, I can't think of anything else. I think I'll throw in the resurrection. It is no. This is essential. I am an apostle. My life has been changed radically through Jesus Christ and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. That's the authentic gospel. 
If we don't hear the resurrection, we're not hearing gospel. If we don't hear the power of the Father that raised him from the dead, we're not hearing gospel. If we're not hearing that at the empty tomb, we see on display the power of God over death, the power of God over hell, the power of God over all sin, the power of God in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we see at the empty tomb. And so Paul says, I'm an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so we have this, um, this gospel that radically changes a life on the basis of the authority of what God has done in Christ. So those two words together, the authentic gospel has the authority to change lives radically. Now, um, very quickly, let me, let me sort of give this some shape as to what that means, what this means for us. We're, we're looking at um, the authentic gospel. My prayer is that this morning you have more of a sense of when you are hearing authentic gospel and when you're hearing just sort of happy talk when you're hearing the proclamation, the charisma of Christ, as opposed to just sort of dispensing of joy and gladness through some kind of uh, saccharine uh, phraseology, I'm, I'm, I'm just praying that you have more of a sense of, here's how I know I'm hearing gospel. When I hear about Jesus, I hear about his resurrection, I hear about the Father, I hear about changed lives because of who Jesus Christ is. That's authentic gospel. Amen. Now, what do we do with that? The first thing is, that many of us have developed filters to keep the gospel out. I can't say what's, you know, what, what you're hearing this morning, but, but I know that most of us have the ability to run everything that's said in a worship service through filters so that things that challenge us, things that might make us a little uncomfortable, things that talk about areas of our life that we'd rather not think about, we sort of filter those out and we let through just the stuff we like. The stuff that makes us feel better. This is the person who says, well, I go to church and I listen to the sermon. I don't believe all that Jesus stuff. And, you know, frankly, I don't, I don't believe the Bible either. But, you know, the music is good. Has a good beat. Easy to dance to. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and, and what the guy says in the sermon, you know, sometimes he just gets off on this tangent and he just goes on and on and on about the Bible and Jesus. But every now and then he says something helpful. We have these filters that allow us to keep out the stuff that challenges our sinful hearts. And we keep it out. You know, the entire worship service is designed to bring us to Christ. That really is it. That's why John spends the time constructing the service and, and giving the, the songs the shape to do. That's why Debbie picks out the, the anthems and the hymns that, that we sing. Look, that's why we sing the doxology every Sunday. It's not just to fill up space while they bring the offering plates forward. It's so that at least every Sunday, if nothing else, you will hear that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. And you'll know he's worthy of praise and adoration. 
The whole worship service is designed to bring us to Christ, that he would get praise, honor, and glory, that we would adore him, that we would absolutely be enthralled with who he is. Now, that's the whole purpose of the worship service. And here's what we do. While we're singing the hymns, while we're singing the, the praise songs, while we're going through all that, the most, most exalted theological thought going through our heads or something like, my feet are killing me. If that's the case, sit down and worship God, okay? I sit there because my back hurts after a while, all right? I take that as a sign from God that I should sit down when I worship Him. <laughs> but you know, we listen to sermons, and we're filtering that out, and, 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 the, and the only thing that really gets to us is, mm, 10 till, and he's only on point one. I mean, this is what we do. And then we talk about the fact that I don't know what the guy was talking about. Well, we filtered it all out. All right, here's the deal. Now that we have a sense of what the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ, let's be intentional about listening and embracing and accepting and surrendering to the authentic gospel of Christ. I mean, it, it, what, what that means is, is, is simply um, just loving Jesus a bunch. It means loving him more. That's why we talk about having a passion for Christ. That's why we talk about uh, adoring him. That's why we, we say he is worthy. It's because the whole point of worship is to come to the foot of the cross and give him praise and thanksgiving and through the Son to glorify the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's, 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 that's what we're about here. And so it, as, as we're sensitive now to an authentic gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation in him by the power of his resurrection, then let's be intentional about our listening and let's be looking for ways to magnify Christ as we have a passionate love for him in our lives. Because he's not an idea. He's not a what. He's a living Lord. And he is the who of the gospel. Secondly, Keep in mind that the authentic gospel has authority. The authentic gospel has authority. This will come as a surprise to you, but some people sort of feel like the Christian faith is a cafeteria line, and you go through the line, and you take what you want, and you don't take other things. So you wind up like I used to at the end of the cafeteria line in college. You know, you, you, you have a meal, and you're just glad nobody's there who's a nutritionist to tell you, you know, what the, the value of, uh, you know, nutritional value of the meal is. Calories, 3,000. Nutritional value is about zero. So, um, you know, and, but a lot of us, we want to go through the cafeteria line of the faith and just, oh, well, I, I like this happy talk over here. I, I like the fellowship over here. Um, don't care for that Bible thing too much. After all, who, who really reads that anymore? Uh, oh, and, and, and I like it when, when he tells me uh, that, that other people are wrong, where he talks about my sins. Let's, let's skip that. You know, we have this cafeteria attitude towards the gospel, but the authentic gospel has authority. The whole gospel has authority. We are not summoned by a part of the gospel. We're summoned by the whole gospel. You know, and, and the answer is the same. You know, when you fall in love with Jesus Christ, nothing else matters. You just want to please him. You just want to honor him and glorify him. You just want him to be everything in your life. And so you find yourself doing strange things like surrendering your all to him giving him all your resources, all your time, all your energy, giving him every thought, letting him hold sway, letting him be Lord and King of all that you are. 
because the authentic gospel has authority. And then lastly, we do not submit to the authentic gospel the same way that we submit to a New Year's resolution. I don't need to remind you about New Year's resolutions. You've already broken them. Uh, that's the only reason you make them. And how, how long does your willpower last? 10, 20 minutes? Something like that? I mean, that, that willpower that you have in you, how's that working on your diet? That willpower, how's that working in controlling your your anger? That willpower that you have, it's really not working that well for you, is it? So what makes you think that being a believer in Christ and encounter with the authentic gospel is a matter of willpower? Look, folks, we cannot keep what the gospel means in our lives. We are unable to love Christ enough. We are unable to understand enough. We are unable to do what we ought to do. We are just unable. And here's the good news. This is why it's gospel. God sends his Holy Spirit, and he does it in us. Folks, this will liberate your life when you come to understand that Being a believer in Christ is not a matter of doing enough so God will love you. It's loving God so that he will work in you. And it's not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of the Holy Spirit of God. Okay. So as we keep working, how how far did we get about one verse? Okay. The brothers who are with him will have to wait. But... uh, as we continue to work through the letter to the Galatians, I want for us to, to latch on to this, the authentic gospel, not what, you know, it's crafted to be by the world or shaped to be by, by specialists in marketing and, and communications, but the gospel of Jesus Christ given to us in the Holy Word of God, revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might love the Savior, love him and give him everything, just surrender our all. To him. Let's bow for prayer.